0: It's good to be with you guys this morning. You're new or visiting. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I think there was a football game yesterday. I'm not sure. I don't know why you're cheering. Texas State lost by seven. So um, hook them. Aggies, Baylor, tough, isn't it? Um, (laughs) So if you're new or visiting, uh, I'm Tyler, like I said, and you're actually coming to our church, if you've been a part of the last couple weeks, in, in a unique series for our church. Uh, we've spent the last few weeks considering together, what, what kind of people do we want to be together? What, what, what kind of individual do you want to be? What kind of church do you want to belong to? And we've been looking at who do we want to be by the year 2030? And not because we know that everyone in this room will still be here by 2030, but because wherever God calls you, you need to learn as a Christian, what does it mean to be a part of building his kingdom wherever you are? And to build something great always takes time and takes planning and takes sacrifice in order to do it. And there are a lot of reasons why, honestly, as a church, we felt this kind of need for fresh direction. But one of the most fundamental reasons has been the drastic amount of change all of us have experienced. See, not only have the last three years been uniquely painful and anxious and difficult, but even before the pandemic, our larger sort of cultural, spiritual context was changing rapidly in all sorts of ways, and if that kind of macro level, societal level change that we were all going through, no matter where you were in our country, if for those of us who were in Austin throughout that, we experienced all that change in a city that's known for how rapidly it's changing relative to almost every city in our country. So all that's happening, to say that our church has changed over the last five years would be a drastic understatement. And so it's been from all this experience of change that across our congregations, all over our city, there's been this growing sense that we need a fresh direction together. And not just, not new theology, not fresh theology, we're established in that, but a fresh direction together. So what we've been doing the last few weeks is working through the different sort of components of this larger vision that all the elders across our church have been working on and praying towards that we would become. So I'm gonna read this to you and I hope that you've been here last three weeks, this becomes repetitive because when it becomes repetitive, it means you're beginning to remember it. So let's read it and see the kind of people we wanna be. And if you're new or visiting, this is the kind of church that we'd love for you to be a part of. It says this, by 2030, by God's grace and power, by God's grace and power, we pray the following is true of us. We pray that it's be true of us, that we are joyfully devoted disciples of Jesus. Glorifying God together as one church through firmly established congregations who love one another. Bless Austin, send to the nations and pursue multi-generational kingdom impact. So this week we're looking at that phrase, bless Austin. And we gave some, some greater texture to it in a larger statement we read before the first week. Here's the kind of people this, here's what it looks like to bless Austin. We are authentic familial and hospitable communities of discipleship known for love and truth. Where the skeptic is welcomed and the believer is challenged. We are welcoming witnesses for the gospel of the kingdom. What that's meant to articulate is that our conviction as a church from God's word is that any notion of church, any practice of God's people that lacks love for the world around it is failed to be the church Jesus commands us to be. So that, that statement of skeptic is welcomed and believer is challenged does not mean we don't welcome believers and it does not mean we don't challenge skeptics. But the idea is if you're here and you're on the fence, you're not sure what you think about Jesus and we're really glad that you're here we want you to feel welcome. We don't want to push you or challenge you unnecessarily. And if you're a believer, what we're saying is if you truly love Jesus, then let's obey him. Let's follow him. Let's actually do the things we say we want to do. And the idea is that we as a church would, and as a, as a people would remember that we have been blessed and we have been given so much, not to just, because the temptation is to hoard it up and to use it for our own safety and our own control and our own power as we watch the world crumble, but the reason you've received gifts, the reason you've been given salvation for so many, for so many reasons, one of them is so that we would bless other people with that. So the world around us would be better because of our being in it, that we would be a people that's so shaped by God's word and God's love and God's holiness and God's grace that we can't keep them to ourselves. Like I have been praying, like of all the messages in our church, I've, I genuinely think this is one of, the, one of the most difficult ones because of how deep our need is for it and how honestly most of us are being kind of discipled into acquiescing to the world, or disengaging from the world. And what does it mean to be a welcoming witness, to be welcoming and bear witness to Jesus at the same time, is proving more and more difficult, which is why we need the Holy Spirit of God to fill us freshly. Our prayer has been that the Holy Spirit would fill his church with a fresh sense of the heart of Jesus and the apostles. So when Jesus was resurrected, here's how he spoke to his disciples and and ultimately to us. He said he's resurrected, he's accomplished all the work, and it says, John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace. Of all the things Jesus, Jesus could say to you this morning, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. That the heart of Jesus was to bring you to himself, and in the same way he came after you, he's sending you out after the world to find his people. And then Acts 1-8, he's about to ascend into heaven. He's about to leave the church with this great mission. And here's what Jesus says. But you, in Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You can have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, but power for what? And you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. You have all the spiritual power that you need, but for what end? To be my witnesses in real places like Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Like, here's the idea. Everybody in here who's a Christian, you want to be a part of a vibrant, healthy, dynamic church where the presence of God is real and you feel a sense of purpose in your life. All of us want that. But we can't say we want to be a part of God's spirit and what his spirit is doing in this world if we don't care about his mission and the reason he was given to us. You were given, believer, the Holy Spirit of God, both for your purity and devotion and repentance and nearness to God and also for the mission that he's given to you and the purpose that he's given to us. Paul sums this up so well in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul the apostle is describing how he views the world around him. He says this, I have become all things to all people so that by every possible means, save some. Notice how Paul views people who are outside the faith. He doesn't sneer at them, he doesn't push them away, he doesn't make them meet every qualification he can come up with that makes him feel comfortable. He's saying, I will let go of anything and everything other than the gospel so you can know who Jesus is. And why does he do it? To, pro- to promote the name of some brand or some church, no. I do all this because of the gospel, why? So that I may share in its blessings. He's saying, I have so, I've been blessed so greatly by God through this gospel that I preach, I want more people to know it so I can be blessed by it. He's doing it for his own joy in it. And that's the kind of church that we're called to be, but we're gonna have to do some hard work ourselves if we're gonna fall in line with the great joy God has for us in his purposes. See, in order to be a welcoming witness for us now, we as a people have to take stock that even though most of us, if not all of us, weren't here in 2002 when the Austin Stone was planted, it has been a full generation since this church was planted. It's been 20 years. And what happens is different generations assess Jesus's claims through different lenses and experiences. There's a lot of things happening in the broader sort of American church right now, but one of them is that many of the prominent churches and leaders that have formed a lot of us all became prominent in a different generation. And now we're in this new landscape And what's happening is the ground under our feet has shifted in some ways, and our assumptions are different, and our questions are different, and our concerns and aspirations are different, and they're different inside and outside the church. So we we have a thing called partnership at our church for those who want to follow Jesus with us. It's it's our term for membership. And in this class, we always have a time of open Q&A. You can ask whatever you want to leaders in our church. we We dialogue about it. I've been a part of a lot of these classes. And it's fascinating to me that in the last five years or so we can see a genuine shift in the questions that are asked in order to assess if you wanna be a part of a church. Like 15 years ago there were questions about doctrines like Calvinism and Arminianism which are still asked but that was very much of the time and place. There's still theological questions and leadership dynamics that are asked but now there are a lot more questions around women in leadership and LGBTQ and race. And politics, and all sorts of other ethical concerns, and before you think, well, they always ask that, whoever your they is. It's from every side of these topics. It's so interesting to hear people ask that question, and you think you know where they're coming from, and they're the exact opposite of what you thought. And I actually bumped into a um, former nonprofit leader here in the city of Austin. He had started a nonprofit in around 2008. And it was to help the church serve the least of these, the marginalized, in our city. And we were talking, and I was, I was actually working on this months ago. And I said, hey, what is, like, what would the differences be between starting your nonprofit now in 2023 versus then in 2008? We talked a little bit about different things, but he said this. He summed it up really nicely. He said, in 2008, I could say we want to help poor people and no one batted an eye. And now, there is much more contention about what that statement means. Again, from both sides. From every side of the topic. Because now we're all wondering, well what do you mean by that? Because we've been trained with different language and different codes. I talked to a former pastor here who planted a church in downtown Austin in 2007. He, He was summing up the difference between his conversations with those who don't know Jesus. And he was saying when he first planted his church, a lot of the questions were like, is Christianity true? Like, is the witness about the Bible, is it reliable? And things like, you know, how can um, God and suffering coexist? And all these different questions, which are still real questions, but now the conversation has shifted to the question of, is Christianity good? Is it good? Can people really flourish in it, or is it only designed for a select few? Is it really irrelevant to most of our lives? It's just something that some people believe, but there's no real change that it produces. And as all this kind of cultural landscape is shifting, what's happening in the church is then we're going through kind of, not even somewhat at our church, but at the the broader church, we're going through scandal after scandal that makes all of us wonder, I don't know, is it good? Makes all of us wonder, like, is it really worth giving my life and time to a church? In all of us, the last couple of years, I'm sure, most of us, you've had, I've had friends and family leave the faith. You've had that, I'm sure. There, there are churches that like we used to be locked step with that are closed down now. There's churches that used to be fervent about God's word that have just forsaken God's word and acquiesced into culture and whatever it tells them to believe on every side. There's other churches who have pulled away from the world and just focused on God's word with no concern with the world around them. And what I've noticed is all these conversations about faith and church, for a lot of us, we're kind of left either feeling defensive or hopeless. You have conversations. That there's not many people who are like, if you ask them, what's the future of the church in America? And everyone's like, fantastic, you know? I haven't heard that answer a lot. And normally if they say fantastic, I'm like, what's your angle on this, right? Like there's always suspicion there because we don't know what we mean. I remember when I I became a Christian, there was, I had never heard this phrase before, but this phrase was used often, that the church is the hope of the world. That the church is the hope of the world. I, I wonder if we think that. I mean, right now the church is like, we can barely take care of our stuff, much less the world's. But here's what's incredible, for all the turmoil and all the challenge, God's promises to his church remain the same. Like, you need to understand something about God the Father is that if you are a Christian and your identity never changes, your standing is always sure, but also that also means that our dynamic with God the Father is not static. We we can go through difficult times because he literally tells us he disciplines those whom he loves. All of us receive, if you are in Christ, the discipline of God the Father not to shame you or to crush you, but to purify you. And so even when God is disciplining his church, and I think he has been disciplining his church, he's not doing it to cast us out, he's doing it to draw us near, to cut off those things we've begun to trust in more than him and to purify us in his love and joy with him because the truth and the hope and the power that Jesus has been risen from the dead is still just as true now as it was then. Nothing's changed in that regard. But every generation of the church we have to reimagine, well, but what does it mean to be a welcoming witness to our context in our time? And the way you do that is by getting even more clear and clinging even more tight to the gospel and then being even more open-handed with methodology. A lot of the time, the church can confuse methods for the gospel itself. We can confuse how God worked in your life and the things he used in your life as what he always uses. And we can confuse, no, no, it's always been the message of the good news of Jesus that saves. And every generation of the church has to think creatively about how to help the people around us see who Jesus is because the concerns are different. The stories we tell are different. And we have to be positioned like, well, how do we give better answers and better satisfaction and better stories to everyone around us? Because if you're here and you're not sure if you know who Jesus is, the truth that we're experiencing is that everything you're looking for ultimately is found in him. the the cleansing of your conscience, the purpose in your life, the love in your relationships, all those things are put in there by God and sin has corrupted them. And all the church should be saying is, you know, everything you're looking for is found in him and we do it not to promote the Austin Stone, not to feel culturally relevant, not even to feel successful. But honestly, it's because we've tasted and seen, oh, there is nothing like knowing Jesus. There just isn't. To be known by him and to be loved by him and to be forgiven. So many of us have walked in the pastures of forgiveness and love of God so often that you've forgotten what it's like not to have it. You've forgotten what it's like even in your worst moments to know I have a confidence and a hope that I can't undo with my sin. I have a confidence and a hope that can't be taken away from me in suffering. Because all of our friends who don't trust in Jesus, we know that every idol they're trusting in, because we know what that's like, will fail them. Every idol, every good thing we turn into a God thing, it can't keep up with our desires and it can't keep up with our needs. It can't answer questions around death and it can't see us through all the suffering we go through. We are aware as a people, oh, there's nothing like him. So we want everyone to know how good he is starting in Austin to the ends of the earth. And so if we're going to be a welcoming witness, if we're going to think creatively the next seven years of what does it mean to make sure we don't get in the way of the gospel going to people, there's three things we need to do. We need to be a welcoming witness through our church apologetic, with an evangelistic passion, and with a kingdom ethic. So first point through our church apologetic. Now, if that term apologetic, you've never seen it before, it is not the church saying sorry, even if you think we should. Different sermon, okay? It stems from a Greek word that means to defend or validate that the early Christian leaders in the first, second, third centuries is the Greek word that they use to d- explain our faith to the world around them. And so what they would do, they were called apologists, and that's what happens in the church today, where they're seeking to employ different, uh, arguments and lines of reason to push back against attacks on our faith. And many of us have read books or watched videos, listened to sermons that are doing this, and we're helped by them. But the best way, as good as arguments are, the best way to sense validation or a defense for the faith, as designed by Jesus Himself, is actually the love and unity of the church. Look how Jesus talks about this in John 13. Jesus says this to his disciples and to us. He says, I give you a new command. It's a new command that you love one another and according to what standard? Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And then he, that's a command and verse 35, he ties a promise to it. He says, and by this, everyone, everyone will know that you are my disciples if contingent upon you love one another. It's our love for each other that helps everyone see we belong to Jesus. And then John 17, 23, when Jesus is praying with his disciples, he's praying to God the Father, and here's what he says, is, I am in them, talking about Jesus is by his Spirit inside us, and you, Father, are in me, so the unity of God the Father, Son, and Spirit, so that they, the church, may be made completely one, unified, not conformity, but unity. Now, why is that? So the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now in both of these verses, Jesus is tying really tightly the world seeing our love and seeing our unity to what? Seeing him. That God's invisible, you can't see him. Jesus in heaven, you can't see him. The idea is but I can see your love and I can see your unity. These verses don't mean we don't don't have to open our mouths about the gospel, but here's what he's doing. He's locating the persuasion, the validation of the claims we make about Jesus inside healthy relationships between believers. You need to understand something. Healthy churches don't produce faith in people. We don't have that power. If I had the power to produce faith in people, I'd use it on me first, right? Healthy churches, we can't conjure up faith in Jesus in people. We don't have that ability. The Holy Spirit does that. But healthy churches, through love and unity together, can make the gospel we preach shine that much more brightly. We can bring that much more weight and clarity to the gospel we talk about. Like okay, you're here, and, and if you're a Christian, like you've come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is. Think about your own story. Like if you can, remember how you first, for the first time, whether it was in a moment, on a weekend trip, or it took years of time. Think about your story of seeing Jesus for who he is. I would say 99% of us, a big part of our story, are other Christians helping us, loving us, serving us, and we look back and we think, you should not have been as kind to me as you were kind of thing. And you can see them caring for you. It could have been a parent, it could have been a sibling, it could have been a leader but God using the church to love us and help us see Jesus. I mean, I've had the privilege at our church of seeing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people be baptized. And what's amazing about the baptismal is you get to see different, from people all kinds of walks of life, men and women, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different ages, and you get to see God working in everyone's life in different ways. But what's fascinating for all the variety, there's these common beats in everyone's story. In everyone's story, there's always a Christian or Christians who they knew. At some point, they talked about faith or spirituality. At some point, they, they got to know other believers and got to be around them and talk to them and kind of watch them. At some point, they came maybe to a Sunday service or to a worship thing or some kind of moment where they felt the power and presence of God. And through all that spiritual things are happening in their lives and all the while they're going through something difficult or painful where they are having to deal with the fragility of life. That's your story mine. All that's happening is you're having to take in the smelling salts of life to see this thing is fragile. There are wounds I can't heal. There, are, there is guilt I can't get rid of. There is anxiety I don't know how to fix. And all that works together to show us who Jesus is and It's faith in the gospel that opens eyes, but it's a healthy church and love and unity that confirms it. And what's cool about these stories, it's never just one person. It's always different kinds of people working together. It's always dinners and Sunday services and individual kindness and integrity, and they're all playing their part and bearing witness about Jesus. So here's what this is gonna mean for us as a church. If we're gonna be a people who are thinking about, how do I help other people engage in the kingdom of God? We have to do one thing really practically. It means your non-Christian friends need to spend time with your Christian friends. Now some of you are like, that's gonna go bad, right? Like, here, here, here's what happens, it's really easy because the church apologetic requires your non-Christian friends, your Christian friends to spend time together, to meet one another because I have found it so easy to have work friends, neighborhood friends, church friends, and family friends who never meet each other. Sometimes you're like, that's exactly how I'd like it, please. And sometimes that's because that's the way life works out. But sometimes you and I like it because we can be different people, different spaces. Sometimes we like it because you're like, listen, I had a hard day at work. I need to let loose a little bit. No Christian friends for me, thank you. And we wanted something different. You've all been there. Or you're like, no, no, I'm feeling down. And I want to be around some Christian friends who will be nice to me. Like we all have these kind of, we all want to kind of segment our lives. But the truth is, if you you genuinely love somebody who doesn't trust Jesus, who doesn't believe in the way we do, and you want to help them see, you need to understand something. You as an individual can't be everything for them, but the whole church can. You as an individual, you can't be everything for them. I mean, there are people, I need you to know this, who just will not relate to you. They, don't, they will not resonate with you uniquely. I, I felt this so many times as a pastor in pastoral conversations or kind of ministry, kind of counseling settings. I can't tell you the number of times I have said something to somebody. I say these words, I'm trying my best to help them. Here's who Jesus is, here's who you are, and here's what the Bible says, I'm trying, and I'm threading the needle as well as I possibly can, and I can tell that they're like unimpressed. Next, kind of thing. And then the person next to me, I have, I have an actual experience in mine, the person next to me I mean says the exact same thing I just said. And they're like, I've never heard that before. I'm like, what? I just said that. This is also what it's like to be married, right? It's very similar. Like, I just said that. They're like, I've never heard it before in my life. Okay, it's fine, whatever. Like, this is the nature of how, but that's the Holy Spirit reminding me, hey, Tyler, I don't need you for everybody. I don't need you for everybody. You're not gonna resonate with everybody. And the truth is there are people that you work with in your neighborhood who they may, you may not get them at all, but someone in our church can. Someone in your life can. There's gonna be, you're gonna get asked questions about Christianity or faith that you are not gonna know the answer to. That's okay, you don't have to know the answer to everything. But someone in our church should. Someone in our church does. We need our smaller and larger communities to love each other well so that anybody in our city, if they wanted to come and be a part of the kingdom of God, we have someone who can help them figure out what that means for them. Like we want you to be able to invite your friends to our Sunday services. Like our Sunday services will always be God-centered, they will always be formed around his word and forming his people. But I want you to know, even if you brought a friend today, like we're really considerate that there's a ton of people in this room who are visitors, who's checking out faith and checking out church. And we want to be intentional, thinking about our connection space and the way we talk from stage and our kids space and how we follow up throughout the week. We have our city in mind because the whole church should be thinking about our city. We really, I I so badly want you to feel proud to bring your friends to church with you because I know the feeling. I, I, I have gotten these texts before. Hey, I'm bringing a friend today. Can you make sure it's good? Like, and I get it. And I can't promise we'll always be good, but we'll try, right? Because we know what it's like to bring someone to a place that you're not leading, and so you're like, I really hope it's not the money Sunday or whatever it is, right? We're all hoping it's the really good message that they need to hear, right? But the truth is we're going to continue to have our church operate the way that it has, but we're gonna be thoughtful because we take it seriously that you would give this time to us. We want this to be a church where we're doing this together because the whole church is offering a validation in our love and unity to who Jesus is. Second point, with an evangelistic passion. So through a church apologetic, with an evangelistic passion. So I think every Christian in here knows, I think you all know you're supposed to share the gospel. I doubt any of you are like, wait, what? Like, I, I don't think that's true. Most of you know or have been told, like I should share the gospel with other people, and we do it not based on their response, but based on obedience to what Jesus has called us to do. But as a church, here's what's interesting, over the last 20 years, We've had ebbs and flows in our evangelistic fervor. And what's interesting, having been here as long as I have, I've gotten to see, there are some times where we have had, I mean, terrible strategy and pretty poor plans, and we've had amazing fruit. Where people just become Christians, and we're like, we weren't even trying to, and people just become Christians, and it's amazing. There's other times where we had great strategy and great plans, and I mean, nobody cared, right? That's just the nature of life sometimes and everything in between. And while we always wanna grow and be effective in evangelism, I think one thing we haven't talked about a lot as a church is just sometimes it's seasonal. That even the Apostle Paul in his ministry could recognize there are things outside of his control that makes people open to talking about Jesus. Look at First Corinthians 16, eight through nine. This is how Paul talks about his own ministry. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why are you staying, Paul? Because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. Notice what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, I'm going to stay until Pentecost. Why? I just noticed people are really open to talking about spiritual things. So I'm going to stay. He's like, I didn't produce it, but I'm noticing it. Colossians 4, Paul asks for prayer. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word. He's saying, I can't make people want to talk about this thing, so will you pray that God would do that? None of us are better than Paul at helping those who aren't sure what they believe see Jesus for who he is. And yet he understood, I'm not in control of when people are ready for that. There's some seasons where there's an open door, some seasons where there's a closed door, and everything in between. And again, our experience has been the same experience the early church. The early church would would talk about Jesus in some places, and thousands of people became Christians. In other places, no one became Christians. Because there's, God's doing so many different things in the world that for the church, we need to be aware of those seasons, we need to be patient and prayerful, and we need to be able, be able to discern when someone is open to talking about it. Like all of us, you can relate to what Paul just talked about. If you have been a Christian, you have been faithful at all to talk to other people about Jesus in conversation, you can see the seasonal idea. Like sometimes you have coworkers or neighbors or even family members who are interested in spiritual things, even when you'd rather not talk about it. You ever been there? Well, hey, you go to church, you want to talk about this? You're like, not really, but I guess we're going to, right? Because you're not in a place where you feel comfortable or you're like, your faith is struggling and they want to talk to you about it. There's other times where you're bringing up Jesus to people that you love and they're like, cool, 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 don't care, right? It's like your neighbors did not ask to move next to a Christian. Did you know that? They're like, howdy neighbor, they're like, oh God. Like they, they, they didn't sign up for that. Your coworkers did not say, I'd like to work next to two Christians, please. They didn't ask for that. And so sometimes when we talk to people, we forget that this is, they may be cold towards it and then we can feel insecure and wonder for doing a bad job, but sometimes hear me, Spiritual conversations just stall out. They did for Paul. He's saying, I don't have an open door. People aren't interested. Sometimes that happens. And with what what the church, far too often, we don't provide you tools or categories to discern these things. We just kind of tell you, go show the gospel and give you some in- inspiring stories and just send you out. But over the next seven years, we need to start thinking carefully about what does it mean to help you where you are? What are tools that you need to discern those conversations and how can you be aware, how can we create spaces where you don't have to do every single bit of what evangelism entails? Because hear me, there's not one of us who can be everything to everybody. So we wanna start thinking about the next seven years, what do you need to do this? What are spaces we can create where we, you can invite people to things more than just a Sunday service? where you can invite people to spaces where we're asking questions that they care about. Because sometimes, guess what? Our neighbors don't care about what, we're, what Hebrew says. But they may care about how we're dealing with a particular ethical topic. Or they may care about how we're dealing with depression and anxiety. If we wanna be able to help them say, hey, if this is front page for you, how do we help you process and see that everything you're after is found in Jesus? So we wanna have an evangelistic passion again. And listen, in a time and place where all of us are wondering, because you are all gonna have people in your life, in your lives, that you are like, is their life, do they really need Jesus? One of the things you need to understand is you're going to meet non-believers who who are really happy, who have a great marriage, who love their job, who are doing well. It's in those moments where the church can be like, I was always taught you guys were secretly sad, right? I was always taught you guys would, like carry clubs around and hit people because you were so bad and we were so good, but that's not real life. No, the truth is, oh, they're kind of like you. They got hidden things you don't know about. They have sadness you can't see. They have pain either in their life or pain that's coming. And as believers, our job is not to solve every problem or fix every person. Our job is to is make sure that people around us know, yeah, I do follow Jesus and you may not be interested, but if you ever are, I'll be here and we'll be faithful, and we'll be good neighbors, and we'll do good works, we'll be good coworkers, we'll be good students, and then if they ever do wanna know, they'll know they can ask us. And then lastly, with the kingdom ethic. So through our church apologetic, with an evangelistic passion, with a kingdom ethic. So the gospel, it saves individuals, it brings individuals back to God, but it also creates a distinct people who have distinct ethics. Who have distinct ethics of the kingdom of God, and we should seek not to withdraw from the world, but to serve and bless the world around us. So, historically, at the stone, we've said we wanted to declare and demonstrate the gospel that there's content in the message that never changes, and there's demonstration of the gospel through good works that shows what the gospel does. And so, we are called to demonstrate the gospel with good works of service to other people, and hear me, with intentional care for the poor. And the orphan and the widow and blessing the entire city, both spiritual and physical. Why? That's what Jesus did. He did both. Look at Matthew 9, 35. It says, Jesus continued going around all the towns and villages. And what did he do? Teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, yes. And, and healing every disease and every sickness, it's not that he mostly preached and healed a little, or he mostly healed and preached a little, he did both everywhere he went. Because the physical and spiritual are equal in their value and the spiritual under, is underneath the physical happening in our lives. And look at verse 36, and how did he see the crowds? He felt compassion. He didn't see the crowds as they're getting what they deserve, it's their own foolish decisions and see them as different, nor do you see the crowds as basically happy, they'll be fine, I don't, they don't really need my help anyway. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So here, as our culture that we live in increasingly moves into kind of a post-Christian expression. And notice, I didn't say post-spiritual. I actually think, especially in Austin, there's tons of spirituality, but I mean post-Christian in expression The claims of the gospel are going to sound increasingly foreign. The claims of the gospel are going to sound increasingly foreign. We can no longer bank like we have historically that when you talk to somebody that you have a common understanding of sin. Or a common understanding of morality or guilt or shame or goodness or afterlife there's gonna be, there's an increase in the cultural distance, which means the claims we're making sound strange. So in a culture that is obsessed with self-care and parts of that are good and parts of that are broken, how do you make sense of Jesus saying, you'll only find your life if you lose it? How do you relate those two things? It's going to feel foreign. It's gonna sound foreign. And so for us as the church, we are, our lives being lived out in front of other people are gonna be even more important to show what the gospel does in someone's life. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've been in where someone who's on the fence about Jesus is you can talk about the doctrines of Christianity and they're like, yeah, I kind of know all that, but how does it change your life? Like, sure, but how does it change the way you treat people or how does it change your workplace or how does it change the way you handle money? And so often as Christians, we're like, I don't know. I just believe him and trust him. That's good, but we have to form a kingdom ethic to know how to operate in the world. And particularly for the church, this has always meant that the church pays special attention to the least of these in our city. Like when Christianity first began, when it first began in the Roman world, it could not have been more foreign. We have actual writings from Romans, writing to other Roman leaders, calling Christians atheists because they could not understand the doctrines. And their minds like, they don't worship like anyone else that we know. I don't think they're even, they're, they even believe in a God. They couldn't understand it. So it's, it was more foreign then than it is now. But what was fascinating is even though that Roman world could not understand their doctrines, they couldn't deny their service to the least of these. Think about it. People in our city can debate our doctrine all day. But they can't debate whether or not we've helped orphans they can't debate whether or not we've helped those under-resourced. They can say, I don't see your Jesus if he's so real, but the hope is, and there's, again, actual historical letters where where a Roman leader has written to another Roman leader and said, their doctrines are insane, but they help our poor more than we do because they can't deny our service in the ways that we fight for the common good in our communities, whether or not they share our faith because we help people not as a project or means to a spiritual end. Like we only help so we can share the gospel. No, we help because that's God's heart for the world around them. And I want you to know those good Samaritan moments in your life and in mine, when there's a need and you help to meet that need, oftentimes it will be local and unseen. Listen, we are in a world obsessed with fame, obsessed with it. And basically it says, if you don't make a splash, then you don't matter. That says if if no one sees it, then it doesn't really matter. But we belong to a God when Jesus says, no, 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 the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Oftentimes our service to the least of these is gonna go unseen and no one's gonna notice, but God the Father sees and we are gonna bear witness to him in that way. And other times we need to think creatively the next seven years, how do we also do big things for our city so our city can see us existing for their good? We need to start thinking about what does it mean to maybe do a citywide initiative to support education to show that we want to see kids taken care of, or we want to support uh, support community first and see those who are homeless cared for, or we want to do more foster care and adoption, or we want to help pro-life women's health care. Whatever it may be, we want to do something that says, hey, the church is here, and when everyone's looking at Austin to just take, 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 we want to be a people who serve and bless everybody. And not only do we want to engage in the margins, but listen, so many of you have been put in like cultural centers of power too. Like so many of you are, and so many of us are in spaces where you're getting to shape and set culture in workplaces and civic responsibilities in so many different areas in schools. And we want to help you. Well, how do you have a kingdom ethic? How do you have a Christian formed conscience? Because you don't live in neutral environments. I need you to understand that. You don't live in neutral environments. Every environment is worship and trying to get you to worship something other than Jesus. You're, you're surrounded, and, but the, the doctrines aren't clear, but the ethics are. The ethics, the morals of what it means to belong to different kingdoms. And I need you to understand, faithfulness will not always be simple and faithfulness to God will not always be clear. So often we think if it was really God, it'd be simple and clear. But so often, faithfulness in a foreign kind of context is gonna be complex. And most humans, when things are complex, we withdraw to what we know. And the church has to be the people who engage and think robustly about where we are. Like I love, there's a a book of Daniel in the Old Testament and the first seven chapters are great. After that, I don't really understand it. But with the first seven chapters of it, it's when they were in exile, the people of Israel, they're in exile in a land that has contrary morals to them, contrary doctrines to them, contrary culture to them, and Daniel and his friends, they become this sort of model for us to say, hey, how, do you, how are you faithful to God in a context that doesn't care about him? And notice what God gives to Daniel and his friends so they can be faithful, it says this in Daniel 1, 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. God gave understanding, not just in Bible, but in every kind of literature and wisdom, all knowledge is God's. And some of you, God, and a lot of you, God is giving knowledge and wisdom in other areas outside of the Bible, not just for your own, furthering your education and development and career path, but also so you can help the church know how to engage in those areas. Like we're gonna need, please hear me, we're gonna need more robust thinking, not less. We're gonna need greater compassion, not less. We'll have to be knowledgeable about the the people in the world around us and not just assume we know who they are, but to learn about them. Paul says this in Colossians four to every Christian. Act wisely towards outsiders. Be wise, be thoughtful, be intentional, making the best use of the time. Let your speech, verse six, in every Christian, we need to, in our context, hear this. Let your speech always be gracious. But they were being, always be gracious. But they don't care about us. Always be gracious. Season with salt, so you may know how you should answer each person. We have to think deeply and carefully and biblically and reasonably about these ethical and gray areas of life because so often your friends who don't believe in Jesus, I have never had the experience of someone going up to me, going, Tyler, What must I do to be saved? I've never had that experience. Never had a neighbor say, what can wash away my sins? I've never had that experience. Most conversations are about ethics or personal life or counseling situations. And we have to think carefully, how do we engage people in those topics and help them see who Jesus is? How how do Christians engage in jobs and schools and neighborhoods where you're expected to bow to their God's? We're expected to bow to the gods of greed or sex or political party or family or self-interest. And we don't want to be calloused and we don't want to be cowards. But we want to figure out how are we compassionate and courageous? How do we have a kingdom ethic to discern the world around us? So that's who we need to aim to be through our church apologetic, with an evangelistic passion, with a kingdom ethic. And who knows what God will use our church to do? Maybe, maybe we'll see thousands of people in the next seven years see Jesus, trust him, love him, follow him. Or maybe we're in a season of winter and what we're gonna be is faithful and maybe the next generation sees fruit. We don't know the outcome in our time, but here's what we do know. Jesus made a promise, he will build his church. He promised. And we can see from our church, just from sheer physical landmarks, that God has positioned our church across the entire city in really unique ways in a city that's only growing and gaining more influence. And we have a God who is seeking those far from him. And no one should know that God seeks those who are far from him better than the church because listen, none of us could have been further from God and he came and found us. And he came and found us. The reason the church should welcome people no matter the state that they're in is because God welcomed you at your absolute worst and he gave you his absolute best. The version of yourself that you hate, the the self-loathing that you feel, the person that you are ashamed of when you become that person, God says, that's who I was after. And he didn't just give you meager portions, he gave you his very son. And his son didn't just speak a word of love over you, he gave his life to show you how deep his love went for you. He welcomed you at your worst, at my worst, and gave us his best. So all the resources we need to love the world around us, they're not found in your heart. Because it'll run out. The resources to be a welcoming witnesses are not found in the heart of the people around you because their hearts will run out. All the resources we need, all the love, all the energy, all the perseverance, all the wisdom, all the passion to help our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers see how great Jesus is, is found in the ways he's already loved us. Our mission to the world is not found in here, it's found in his mission to us. This is what Jesus said in John 20, 21, if we'll bring it full circle peace be with you, notice how he, he sends us out. He doesn't say, and so I send you to love the world. He says, no, no, as the Father sent me. He's always telling his church, remember how I loved you. Remember how I do love you. Remember what I gave up for you. Remember what I, how I saw you in your worst moments. Remember that, in that same way, See your neighbors that way. See your coworkers that way. See your friends that way. See your family that way. In Romans fifteen seven, this the same sort of logic. Paul says, therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also welcomed you. The same way Jesus saw you, that's how we see other people. If you've known what it means to be found by him, welcomed by him, When nothing in you deserved it, it changes the way you see people. The gospel has this power. I'm telling you, if you taste and experience it, God's love for you and your worst, it has this power to turn people that you normally by your flesh would see them as other. People whose sin you can't understand. People who you think, how could anyone ever do that? The gospel has this way of humbling us and saying, no, I'm just like them. I may not have that struggle or that tendency, but I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to be misunderstood. I know what it's like to feel overlooked. I know what it's like to have guilt and shame. And so the gospel humbles us and says, no, 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 it's the same way home for everybody. The same way home for everybody because we're all equally flawed. But the gospel has this way of saying, but it lifts us up to say, but that means anybody can be seen and redeemed by God. And the church is supposed to mimic that and say, we're giving a picture through our love and unity of what that's like. We sing songs to show off what that's like. We welcome and love each other and show off what that's like because God is able to take his grace and turn it into a power that heals. To take grace and make us see needs and turn our lives into service. That's the kind of church that we are commanded to be but the only way to get there is to be a people who know Jesus for ourselves, to know what it's like to be loved by him. And if we get that, it will be impossible to stop ourselves from wanting to love the people around us in return. Let's pray. Father, this message makes me think of how deep our problems go and how desperately we need you to help us think outside of ourselves. God, I pray that you would save us as a people from believing that what we need to be is even more self-concerned and even more self-obsessed in order to have the healing and power that we're after. God, give us wisdom to know what it means to both be humble about our brokenness and limitations, but also bold about how good and and compelling you are to the world around us. God, purify us in your love and your joy so the city can see just how good you are. God, fill us with your spirit and give us the heart of your son for our city. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.